Hello and welcome back to QC Uncut, uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers with me, your host, Sean Leary. And we are here at the delightful Cool Beans in Rock Island. We are sitting outdoors, which explains the whoosh of traffic going by. And my guest today is Kai Swanson. Kai and I have known each other for quite some time. And... Um, Kai is running for county board, and as I mentioned in my other podcast, um, I think the county board election has uh, had some interesting ideas going back and forth, interesting exchanges. There are a lot of things that are in the public interest, and so I wanted to have both county board, two of um, the, the county board folks who are running against one another on the show, um, the exact same format for both podcasts. I want to make things as level as possible, so I'm asking both the exact same questions in the exact same order and oddly enough we're meeting the, at the exact same place because I met um, the other candidate Josh Ehrman here uh, earlier albeit inside. Kai thank you so much for joining us and being a guest on the show. It's a pleasure to be here Sean I'm re- looking forward to it. Awesome and first question I ask and this kind of shies away from your typical question which you know uh, as I mentioned we'll get to at the end the usual first question um, I know both of you I'm friends with both of you. I've known you longer than than Josh. Um, But, you know, I respect both of you. I like both of you. And what I'd like each of you to do, well, I I asked Josh the same question. What do you like about the other person? What do you admire about the other person? You know, in what ways perhaps you agree with them? Because I think all too often there's a divisiveness in politics, whereas you're both running as Democrats. You're both, you know, uh, you both agree on a lot of things. What are some of the things that you actually like about Josh or admire about him in running his campaign? Well, thanks, Sean. Uh, Well, first off, uh, I I knew Josh's dad. Uh, Michael Ehrman was uh, a wonderful guy, and we got to act in a few shows together up at Genesius Guild. And he was the kind of guy who was not probably by nature an actor, but that's exactly what makes the magic at Genesius Guild. So he was a fantastic guy. I wish I knew Josh better. Uh, I I have gotten to know a little bit about him. I have great respect for him because he served our nation as a Marine. I think that's fantastic. I know he's got a couple of great kids. I'm a dad too, so I think that's uh, pretty awesome. Um, And I wish we had had a chance to to have some conversation around these things. Um, I think that uh, he's got a, a, a take on some of the very difficult challenges we've had uh, in the county uh, that, uh, you know, it's, I, I think he may have an experience like mine, and I'm also, I, I respect him for wanting to get involved. That's a key thing. We need to get more people involved. Uh, and as I think we'll find out over the next few minutes, uh, what I've learned since uh, taking that chair uh, has really opened my eyes. Right. And uh, there's a lot of uh, simple solutions to these complex problems, but uh, the proof is in the pudding. If they were that simple, they probably would have been done about 30 years ago. So what I've learned has been phenomenal, and uh, if, if he prevails in this contest and is elected in November, then I hope he has the same experience I do, which has overall been very rewarding. Cool. Thank you so much. Um, first question is regarding the number of people on the board. And obviously that has been a bone of contention, and I think I think the two of you are actually in agreement on Absolutely. this, that you both agree that the number of people on the board um, needs to be reduced. Right now we're at 25 people for a county board, which um, if you look at other similar-sized counties is very excessive. What do you think is the solution to that? How many people do you ideally think should be on the board, and how do you think that that should be aligned? Should they be full-time, part-time? How should that happen? Great. Well, they are part-time, and they should stay part-time. 
<laughs> so first, if I may, a little bit of background. When I was recruited to join the board in 2015, it was by a very visionary chair of the Rock Island County Democratic Party, Doug House, and he saw the writing on the wall. For years, it had been 24 or 25 Democrats and either one or no Republicans on the board. So the, the Democrats really kind of had their sway of things. But oftentimes, that creates an unhealthy environment, and it became the, the, the case that Democrats sort of became beholden to groups that had a lot of funding, and they did a lot of deals without a lot of debate, right? And so uh, over time, uh, people got sick of that. And when I was uh, recruited, it was it had gotten to the point where it was 17 Democrats and, and, and 8 Republicans, right? So we could see the writing was on the wall that the voters had changed. I mean, Rock Island County was once a lockstep Democrat, and those were great days in, in, in many ways, but the time had changed, right? And so whereas once uh, there was a time that uh, there was a lot of funding that came to the Democratic Party from large and and, and wealthy union organizations, we are saying our party changed. It was less white, less male, less middle-aged, and uh, made up of a different coalition of people, uh, which is something I find very exciting. Right. So one of the vestiges of the old way was you had a 25-member board, which was usually put together by the party chair, who would say, yeah, you do this, and you'll get free health insurance, and you'll get a little pension, and you'll do whatever I damn well tell you to do. And I, I credit Doug House by saying that even though he would have been the beneficiary of such a deal, right, uh, he realized that it's unhealthy and unsustainable. And sustainability is a big part of, of my position. And so he said, Kai, we got to do something, and you're going to make some unpopular decisions, but we got to change them. So from the moment I came on board in 2015, I've been for downsizing. I've looked at a variety of models. One of the things I'm very concerned about is to maintain minority representation on the board. As you know, Scott County has a five-member board that has never had a minority member on it. Right. Ever. Right. Largely that's because it's voted for at large. Yeah. Right? And we're in districts. We're going to stay in districts because uh, scholars agree that's the way to keep the representation. So how small can you get it? Now, I work a lot on management and processes and process improvement in my job at Augustana. So if you read the research, your best committee is seven. But the concern is, among my fellow Democrats, that seven might edge out a non-white persons, which we don't want. Right. And Republicans on the board don't want to go to seven because they think it'll edge out Republicans and, and the rural parts of sure. the county, which currently and usually have had one or two farmers on the board. So... What we've come down to is 15, and so that's what we're fighting for. Due to the just the quirks of Illinois law, you can only use one data set once from the census. Mm -hmm. So once we had said um, using the 2010 uh, uh, over this way, thanks. Oh, yeah. Our drinks are coming, Sean. Uh, so we yeah, better let our listeners exactly. Know. Yeah, here. That's what that's what you're hearing. Thank you so much, Miss. Appreciate it. Great, thank you. Thanks. Uh, I had a peach. Okay, I'll let it know just in case. Yeah, that's great. No, you're doing fine. So anyway, <laughs> anyway um, so you're mentioning uh, the ideal number in your mind is is 15. Now, with the 15, let me interject just a second. Yeah. I'm assuming that the 15 would be, um, there would still be districts, yes. and those districts would be um, uh, appropriated equally throughout rural and urban areas to represent those particular constituencies. Well, you always got to draw 
draw a map, right? Sure, and so yeah. I think a fair map can be drawn at 15 that addresses these concerns, but most importantly, I think it will raise the accountability and integrity we see on the board. It's very easy for people to hide, whether in the Democratic uh, majority or, as we saw recently, to make a, a harebrained vote against refugees, as, as actually happened just right. recently, uh, when there's very little accountability. I think by decreasing the number, it's going to make decisions, individual decisions, a little more visible, right. increase accountability. So I'm, I'm pushing hard for 15, and we can do that as soon as the 2020 data set comes in. So somewhere in the year 2021, we will vote to ask the clerk to draw a 15-district map, and that's what the clerk will do. And then we'll vote on that in 2022. All the seats will be up, and we'll have a whole new board of 15 persons. And of course, that was my next question, yes. Is, yes. is how do you excise those particular people, but that you just answered the question, right. having every seat up, and then you take the 15 that are if voted. If they're a quality candidate, if they're a quality candidate, they're going to get elected to one of those 15 right. seats. But if they've been sitting around, you know, keeping their head down, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Just for the no. listeners at home, this is a peach apricot black tea <laughs> at Cool Beans. And okay. Annette was a great business person. So, uh, yeah. And, and of course, I, off, I ordered the chai latte. So yes, exactly. Cool Beans always does a fantastic job here. A little plug for Cool Beans there. Um, now the, the seats would not be at large; they would be redistricted yes. and redrawn. And yes. then those fifteen. Now, say you had two people that are currently on the board that would then be in a, a rewritten district. They would be going against each other in an election. Just to clarify how this would take place. Well, but yes, but we're not here to we're not here to sustain the jobs of people. Right. Uh, local elected officials who work on on average three hours a week. We're here to serve the people. And the other problem I've had is at 25, if you're satisfied with the decision-making processes of a 25-member board, just look at the way right, what's been happening tough. for the last yeah. 30 years. Yeah. It's a terrible decision-making yeah. process. And I'd also like to see, if elected, to, we're gonna. I, I would like to revamp the committee structure because it's clunky and it doesn't really result in good decision-making processes or funnels. Mm -hmm. I think we can do that much better and increase public engagement in the process. I agree. Um, so the next question, um, gee, I, I, I know you're probably shocked that this is coming up in our interview, Kai, but we're going to talk about the courthouse situation. Um, obviously, that is uh, one of the things that is first and foremost on a lot of people's minds. And um, explain your position in regard to the courthouse. Um, how has it changed, perhaps? And again, this is something that I myself have pled ignorance to. I saw a lot of uh, a lot about it online. I didn't really know much about it when I first heard about it. My initial reaction was demolishing was a good idea. The more I had heard about it, I thought, okay, well, selling it, privatizing it, and putting that in someone else's that decision in someone else's hands would perhaps be a better idea. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I'm entirely self-interested in regard to this because I'm a taxpayer and I own property. I own a house here in Rock Island, and therefore my property taxes are impacted by this. I just want what's cheapest and what's best and what's not going to have the least amount of tax impact upon me. Sure. You t tell me about what your position is in regard to this and why. And as I'm certain, I, I speak for a lot of taxpayers out there, how will it impact us and ameliorate our tax burden? Sure. How about I hold this while you enjoy your latte? Right okay. Ahead. So if I screw something up, just let me know. <laughs> so uh, 
Contrary to popular opinion, I actually have a very high regard for history, and I work at a place filled with historic mm-hmm. buildings, so we need a little history here. Again, when I came on the board, my intent was to save the courthouse, find a way to do it. In fact, I even looked at the company who did First Lutheran and Moline and created a plastic steeple. It's mm-hmm. plastic. And so I asked if they could make plastic domes to replace the domes that had been eradicated due to the structural faults in the building in 1958. Then I started doing a little more historical research, but I was trying to find partners, so I worked with the Chamber of Commerce, the Illinois General Assembly, other agencies in Illinois, the, looking at state historic tax credits. The one thing we were missing was a, a, a bona fide offer from a developer, and that means that if they don't perform, they face penalties. Okay. So in other words, if you don't do this by date certain, you give us back the money, uh, you give us back the property, and we keep the money, or at least a portion thereof. Right. So there's been a lot of great, there's been a lot of talk about this, but uh, I, I have to say that not a lot of it has been evidence-based, and I'll tell you why. Um, when I realized that we were not going to get that progress uh, from the, the sort of the development sector that we would need to make it happen, then I, I decided, well, the best thing we could do is probably tear the building down um, because selling it to somebody independent carries a lot of risk that no developer who said they were interested was willing to carry. Right. You know, So a little more history. Uh, and I'm indebted to Judge Mark Vandewele, who did a great historic presentation. You can read about it online. It's all in the proceedings. What he found was the first evidence that the building was poorly made and shoddily designed was in 1907. Okay. It was 10 years old when the Rock Island Fire Marshal condemned the top floor because you could see daylight between the top of the fourth floor and the se- and the roof, right? So there's a long history of the building being deficient, and it had leaking problems and foundation problems from the get-go. Not everything that was built in the 1890s was really good. I mean, some of it was crap, and I hate to say it, but my research has led me to believe this building was a piece of crap. Between the 1940s and 50s, there were four public referenda held asking the people, would you please have a tax referendum, tax, raise a tax so that we could pay for fixing our courthouse? And in succession, and these were some boom years in Rock Island County, they all failed. And so in 1957, the decision was made to take off the distinctive dome, main dome, and four corner domes, uh, so that they thought that way it would address leaking. And that's when they put that god-awful aluminum cheese box on top of it, which was there my entire life, Right. right? And guess what? It didn't solve the problem. It continued to leak, creating mold mitigation issues that go back for decades. I feel terribly sorry for the people who had to give work their careers in that in a very unhealthy building. And the water damage is not just inside. It's going down and affecting the, the, uh, the foundation, which is all screwed up. Okay. So again, as people are talking about this, we decide, well, we're going to turn it over to the Public Building Commission because another thing to remember is about 10 or 15 years ago, the Illinois State Supreme Court said the building is deficient and cannot serve as a courthouse anymore. So that started the clock. Because if we didn't do something, the Illinois Supreme Court could sue us for not providing adequate court facilities, right? So, all right, there's a lot of backstory here that doesn't get told when we hear the narrative from the other side. Well, and that's why we have the that's yes. why we have this podcast. Yes, yes. So that so, we can have the fullest picture possible. And this is and I wish more had gotten out, but once we then turned over control of the building to the building commission, the public building commission, then 
we basically had a path towards, uh, and, and again, the reason I am loath to sell it to a private developer without ironclad performance guarantees is that land was given to the people of Rock Island County in 1841 by President Tyler. There's not a lot left of Tyler's legacy in the United States, but one is <laughs> that beautiful property. And what I hate about some of these ideas that sound so good and get a lot of coverage is if there's no performance guarantee, the person who wants to buy it could sit on it and then after a couple of years, you know, I really tried. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and demolish it, which isn't going to cost that much. We th- estimate about $400,000, and then they're sitting on a million-dollar piece of property that no longer has, the public has no control over whatsoever. Now, yeah. I have to ask. And I have a little more on that. But sure, sure. Um, when uh, Mr. Lemon came forward with his offer, uh, did that include these uh, performance no. guarantees no. and now what if 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 he did if he came forward with an offer that indeed had these performance guarantees would you move forward with a sale of the building this would be very unlikely because it would require a majority vote of the county board to uh, breach our contract with the Public Building Commission, which has already entered into contracts, which, as you know, are the subject of litigation, which we're waiting for at any minute to find out what's going on. So uh, at this point, the reason I would vote against such a reconsideration is that conceptually... Now, you got to remember, Sean, I've lived my entire life in, in Rock Island, yeah. the city, not just the county. And ever since I was a little kid, every time I came off the Centennial Bridge into Rock Island, I was confronted with this ugly, indeterminate building. And remember, I mean, I grew up not just working at, but even before, at a place like Augustana, which has architecturally significant buildings. I went to high school at Rock Island High School, which is one of the most architecturally significant buildings in the region, thanks to the architect uh, Olaf Servin, and then the public school stadium. I mean, these are architectural gems, right? So I was never impressed with that. I mean, it's, it's, uh, especially with the little tin cheese box on top, which, okay, I think it will be an aesthetic improvement to turn that into a public commons. We have a lot of great memorials that we could create around there. I know there's talk of doing something else with it down the road. The the reality is we don't have any money to do anything. And you talked about as a taxpayer, and I want to address that. The only way the proposal, which has no guarantees, would work is $8 million, not of a developer's money, but in tax credits. Where do tax credits come from? They come from deferred payments. So the school district gets no additional money from that. The city gets no additional money from that. And the county gets no additional money for that. So where's your tax relief going to come from? The fact of the matter is, it isn't. The money that is set aside for this has already been levied. It's already been accounted for. It's just a matter of signing over a check. So you will get no benefit from turning it over to somebody who needs a mountain of tax credits to make anything happen if something happens. And then if it doesn't happen, well, yeah, maybe if they get a tiff on this, maybe when your son uh, or my grandchildren are starting to uh, pay taxes, you know, <laughs> they might benefit. But otherwise, it's going to be tiffed out of existence in, in terms of tax revenue. So there's no real benefit. We do have a, a very handsome, new, uh, and I think well-designed ju- uh, justice center, and nobody can see it because there is this uh, decaying property wrapped in police tape and boarded up windows just like Memorial Christian Church across the street, which we were assured by preservationists would be developed imminently 20 years ago. And then remember, you go around the corner of the Argus building, that has sat vacant, the Bituminous building, and then my favorite, the Moline Public Library, that beautiful Carnegie Library, which has now sat vacant for the better part of a decade. But remember, we were told 
you know, oh, it's going to happen imminently. So while I have great respect for the preservation community, the record we see when we open our eyes is that while they are very good at making the wrecking ball stop, there is not as much success with making something positive happen. Now, you mentioned that, and you, and you said this publicly, that you would like to see it turned into a green space. A which public A public commons, yeah. Um, what, do you, what would you have to say? And aesthetically speaking, aside from any financial incentives, and again, I, I, I fully admit that I, I'm just, I want my taxes to go down. I want to not have to deal with this. Um, but um, we're... You know, it to be demolished, I think the most attractive option, if it were demolished, would be to have a green space, I think, aesthetically speaking, because you're coming right across the bridge. One thing I would not like to see, which I have heard is a potential possibility, is a juvenile detention center. Please address that. Uh, in regard to any sort of rumors or talk about it being a juvenile detention center because I think the last thing that we in Rock Island need with the reputation Rock Island already mistakenly has in the Quad Cities is you come across the bridge and you see a child jail. Right. Well, I agree with you wholeheartedly and I think we're seeing an end of the incarceration industry as a a mega industry in America. Uh, That is a rumor and I'll tell you that it's never been brought up in a public meeting that I've been a part of whether on a committee or, or anything else I think it was mentioned once, uh, and it was probably in the context of one of the things that the county has to account for Mm -hmm. is the safe incarceration of persons in the county's custody. And so that includes, yeah, we have to pay sometimes to have juveniles housed someplace else, but guess what? Cook County pays to have people housed, adults housed with us. So I, I would be vehemently opposed to that. I think the best thing we could do is let the land just be with some design, right? We're in a place that has design elements of Frederick Law Olmsted in some of its green spaces, why not capitalize on that legacy and make something that we can be proud of when we come off the Centennial Bridge and come home? That's what I think. Would you do the same thing with the church across the way if the church were able to be uh, acquired? Uh, do you think that that would be the best um, usage for that space and have a dual green space, dual commons um, coming across the bridge? <laughs> I really appreciate your creativity. Here's the thing. We have so many problems of what we have. Right. I have never even thought about that. I mean, but I wish something would be done to aesthetically clean that up. And again, the notion we have to ask ourselves is how realistic is this development proposal if there is so much available vintage property for redevelopment in downtown Rock Island within about a half a kilometer from where this building is that remains vacant and decrepit and and is like the church covered in boarded up windows. I understand the inside is, is flooded and is terrible and then with police tape all the way around it and and sending police authorities there on a regular basis to roust those persons who shouldn't be in it. Mm-hmm. You know, so again, I'm, it's not like I'm a market guy or something, but basic economics, when you've got a glut of supply of available vintage office space and nobody's buying it, why add more to the glut of supply? Mm-hmm. Would I you heard an answer to that question. Would you be willing to sit down with Mr. Lemon or any other developers to discuss um, any any of these options further and to see if there is any sort of, if he is really wanting, and, I, and I've had Joe on the show before, and he seems like he is very desirous of, of taking over this property. 
if he would be willing to do so, to, to add that in there, to add that codicil in, in regard to you either develop it or else it reverts back. At this stage, I don't think anything is realistic there. And I tell you, there, there's a bit of a question about how uh, how honest a broker he is, because he's made some representations which are factually unbased. I mean, there's no base for them. Uh, among others, his more recent thing about a, a federal courthouse deal that would still start with him getting possession, right? And uh, and I do have to add, as I did when, he, when I talked to him and he mentioned things in regard to you, he is not here to defend himself, and so no, therefore this no, is all... I mean, I just, but, and, and as I just would ask you in a future conversation, he has allowed the representation to exist that this $8 million deal is his money. It's not. He's talking about uh, public uh, tax credits that he would get. The other thing is, we have had conversations with the GSA, which is the General Services Administration of the federal government, which would make decisions on all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. When they started their RFP process, which the preliminary deadline passed in 2017, as a matter of fact, uh, they were making it very clear they wanted new construction. Right now, they've got six, uh, we understand, six properties under consideration. Yeah, there is a couple of days left before you can put in uh, another RFP, but none of them is a, is, a, is a rehabilitation project or a restoration project. They are all new projects. There is one that involves an historic property, and I won't get into that, but it also involves adding to that historic property with a newly designed building that takes into account everything, which is why we had to build a courthouse, of modern courthouse design. You can't just simply set a couple of rooms and say it's a courthouse. For instance, in our county courthouse, we're under state stricture that for victims of domestic violence cases, they have to have an entirely segregated separate entrance and egress. Right. You know, you can't just put people into a corridor sure. when they're facing, you know, people who did vile harm to them, right? So anyway, uh, it's a bit disingenuous to come up with these kinds of things. Uh, and But to your question, I don't like the idea of individual county board members freestyling. Uh, if there were a bona fide proposal that somebody would put in front of the finance and personnel, and I don't just mean, here's what I'll tell you I'll do if you give it for five bucks or 500,000 right. bucks. I need, I need it detailed. Uh, and that's not going to happen in the amount of time. I mean, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, where we are now, and, and this would be my personal vote, is the best thing that can happen with that property is a public commons, and I, I would be willing to say that I wouldn't vote for any changes to a green space until it's had a chance to live into it uh, for, in my opinion, a generation. And no, there's not going to be a, I don't see a, a, a youth thing there. Some talk has been about consolidating buildings. We have an amazing historic building in what was the original modern Woodman building, now known as the county office building, which needs some work, right? And rather than going from scratch, I think we could make some structural and aesthetic improvements to that building and have it be something we can all be proud of for a fraction of the cost of new construction. I, I, I usually don't like going off the, the script here because um, I didn't ask Josh this question. Um, do you mind if I ask you a, a further question that I did not ask no, him? Because, I want, like I said, I want to be as fair as possible yeah. and ask you both the same question. This is tied into what we were just talking about, however. Um, is there anything, as you mentioned, and as I've talked about on this show quite a bit, there are a number of spaces that are open in downtown Rock Island. Has the county, how has the county addressed that, or how would you address that in regard to possibly trying to, you know, develop those spaces or to uh, sort of 
open up more avenues to uh, ameliorate the number of yeah. open spaces there are on Rock Island. You mentioned the Argus building, which is, again, true. Beautiful um, building. Um, there are a number of bituminous. Exactly. There are a lot of great buildings. And even if you go outside of Rock Island, Moline Public Library, the Dispatch Building, again, another one. So another fantastic building. How do you, how do you, how do you change this? How do we turn this around and kind of bring these buildings back onto the tax rolls and um, help out, help alleviate some of the property taxes? I'm going to give you an answer you may not expect. You want me to hold that so you can drink your chai again? No, go ahead. Okay. All right. So (laughs) the county does not currently have the capacity to play any economic development role whatsoever. In fact, we stopped paying dues to some local development groups because we don't have the money. Mm-hmm. We once had a $10 million prudent reserve, which is not rich, but it gets you through uh, payroll season when you're not getting tax money, right? Uh, it's down to under $100,000 now. We don't have any money for this kind of stuff. So uh, all of that economic development devolves to the cities, Rock Island, Moline, and right. so on and so forth. Uh for the, the, the county to be able to be a player in having a, a place at the table on those conversations, we have to put our fiscal house in order. That's number one, which is why since I've been on the board, I've been, we worked a strategic plan pardon me, a strategic plan, a deferred maintenance capital plan, all of these things that would bring us back a prudent reserve of 25%. That means a three-month reserve so we could at least not borrow to make payroll. Mm -hmm. Because if you're borrowing to make payroll, your finances are pretty screwed up, right? right? So we need to do the basic fiscal reform. Mm -hmm. uh, And I know you're probably going to get to Hope Creek, but selling Hope Creek was part of that basic fiscal reform. We have to do that, as painful as it is, before we can have a say be invited to the table to talk about uh, anything related to uh, uh, economic development, which is what I think we should at least be a player. It's embarrassing that we, if we wanted to express an opinion on anything, it doesn't matter because we don't have the money. Now, on the plus side, I'm also the president of the Forest Preserve Commission as part of my elected office on the county board. We have affected a 40% prudent reserve for the Forest Preserve, which means right now we're looking at two federal grants that we can apply for. One for Alinawek for trails development on the bike trail, and the other is for Niobe about a very special project. If you had no reserve, because they both have matching funds, you have to be able to put up so much to do it. If we had no reserve, we wouldn't be a player in either. If we had a little reserve, like maybe just 5%, we could put up one, but not the other. Mm -hmm. But by uh, affecting fiscal discipline in the commission and the Forest Reserve District, we're going to go after both. And that's what fiscal prudence gives you. So that's the answer to your question. It's boring as hell, but you got to do the blocking and tackling on fiscal stuff before you can do the bigger stuff. Now, as I, as I mentioned to Mike Tomes, before mayor of Rock Island, are there any taxes that can be levied on undeveloped properties to incentivize, so to speak, the owners to develop them? Well, we're not a home rule county, and under Illinois law, that means there's very little we can do. The cities of Moline and Rock Island are both home rule communities, and so they have some of those revenue options that we simply don't have. Uh, so that's not in the realm of possibility for a county board right now. Unfortunate, because I... Um, but if we do good fiscal work, we can be a player, right? Um, how can the board be more transparent in regard to these things? Now, obviously, this is this has long been the goal of this podcast, is to allow people to explain 
these type of issues. It's very difficult, as you mentioned, to explain issues of this nuance and detail in a soundbite. If you've got a 10, 15 inch story in the paper, or you've got, you know, a minute, yeah, which ain't happening anymore, or you've got a few minutes on the newscast or even the radio show, as you well know, the radio shows have a very limited amount of time. It's only through something like this that you can completely explain in detail what's what yeah. really needs to be explained so people can make up their mind how can the board be more transparent in regard to these things so that we do have a more informed and educated electorate who can make better decisions and have more informed opinions first thank you for providing this format because you're right it's unique nobody else is doing this and i'm grateful to you for doing it my answer to that question is we pivot more towards the professional county administrator and make the board more about oversight and accountability and here's the rationale how did we for 20 or 30 years have a nursing home uh, in its old location and its new location that especially in the new location got to the point where it was losing two hundred thousand dollars a month because the deals that had been made by elected county board members to favor one union made it so expensive to run that home that it ran up a debt that I believe is at latest count $17 million between long-term and short-term debt. It's because those deals were made and they were simply brought out and say, vote yes. Right? Right. Okay. If you have, and so I'm grateful to my predecessors, just before I came on, they hired the first county administrator who was an independent professional, not a former board member. And so he did some good work, but of course he left and so didn't get to complete a lot of the stuff he was doing. The guy we have now, it's interesting to see who really doesn't like him. The ones who really don't like him are the beneficiaries of the old way of doing things, okay? Let me hold it for a second, rest your arm. So the, the, the people who really don't like him you will see a high uh, incidence of folks who are losing something in the process of reform, right? how that always happens. Isn't that something? Uh So my my theory that I would posit and answer your question, because we share that, that desire for transparency, is if you have a professional who uses data to make an informed suggestion to the board, my pledge has been, I will support it unless I have a ready alternative in hand and ready to go, Mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, I'm not just going to say, well, we can't vote for that today because uh, who's a what's a present buzzing? And then that's where the backroom stuff comes in. And you can practically hear that voice from the past. Right. So my answer to your question is by empowering the administrator, creating a smaller board, more focused on strategic direction, but also accountability of the professional staff, this will naturally happen. You know? The, and then if you think, you know, your great work on Walmart, what happened there? It's when the, the, the council lost its role of oversight to the professional administrator right right? so to do that you got to elect independent people I prefer Democrats but people who aren't beholden to particular uh, interest groups Mm -hmm. right and so who are gonna look at that and and again my solution is okay administrator you use data that you have access and time to go through and give us a suggestion defend it and unless I've got a better alternative I'll support it now how would you feel about um all of the meetings and things of that nature being, I mean, we have the technology to do this now, being recorded and put out there the same way that this is being recorded so that every single thing that happens in the meeting is on Facebook Live or whatever or is videotaped and put out there is, you know, recorded on a recorder and put out there as a podcast or whatever so that people can listen to it and you can hear. Um, And that every... Obviously, as you know, you know you have to 
um, come in and say that this is going to be on the agenda or whatever. Now, this is my understanding. Right, Open Meetings Act. It's my understanding. Um, Dora Valeriel came on and talked at last meeting. That was not announced ahead of time. Again, matter of protocol. But nevertheless, yeah. that's one of those things where people who may have been there, who may have had something to say in regard to what she was talking about, wouldn't have known that because of the lack of transparency in regard to that. Would you be in favor of the complete and total recording of every meeting in regard to this and putting out there for the public? With the exception of legitimate reasons to go into closed session, right? If it's a right. personnel matter, sure. litigation, oh, yeah. real estate, that kind of thing. Yes, I would be. Now, the thing about the, our current structure is it's clunky and hard to understand and that we have a committee of the whole meeting in which, by our stated practice, no decisions are made. But we can hear info on everything. So even before she spoke, a member of the public came and spoke mm-hmm. about a matter that wasn't on the agenda. Sure, right. And that's okay. Yeah. But I I think your solution is a good one. The only concern I would have is that we do have a couple of local bodies that do televise everything, and there is probably a little more grandstanding than I think is helpful. Right. And again, if you get to the point where you've got a, a, a very competent administration, and I, the, my golden example would be John Phillips in the city of Rock Island. When he was the city manager, you know, he had a great team, he had a great yeah. staff, and you knew that he was giving them the best information he could. Sure, yeah, yeah. Now, the administrator may give us three choices and say the data say this about this one, and this about this one, and the data argue very strongly against this one, and then we still have to make a decision. Yeah, that's fine. I get it. But uh, this, yeah, I think it would be better. I would like to see we get rid of the small committees and have two public meetings of the county board per month. That's it. The whole board, 15 of them, in two meetings that are equal meetings like the city council where votes can be taken, things have to be on the agenda before they're they're spoken to, um, and stop the gamesmanship with both the Freedom of Information Act and the Open Meetings Act. And I'd be totally in favor of that. Okay, cool. Federal Courthouse building in Rock Island has been shut up, shut down for a while. Um, you've been operating out of Davenport. Um, how do you feel about developing a new federal courthouse? What do you think is the long-term um, picture in regard to what's going to happen in regard to this? Well, uh, we have it on good authority that they are looking. They're, 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 the goal is to keep it in Rock Island, which is the county seat, sure. which makes operating efficiencies great. And the understanding is, based on what we've heard from GSA, is that they're looking at either a new development, and I'll let you fill in the blank there. I mean, what's what's about to get built downtown? Right, right. No, but Modern Woodman, right? Of course. So yeah. maybe there's something with that, or an addition to an aging building, but they want new construction, and I think that's that's all to the positive. It, it's it's a huge boon to have a, uh, a federal court. It happens that one of the retired uh, judges of that court is a longtime friend of mine, and I've been a longtime friend of the chief uh, of the district, uh, 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 Judge Darrow, Sarah Darrow, um, so it's all to the positive that they want to maintain their presence in Rock Island, and uh, I think it would be a positive if they had some new construction. And you know, and they can't re- the the building as it stands is you cannot revamp or it's it's in, yeah no 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 the um, the federal courthouse oh yeah the the mold situation it cannot be reversed yeah, there's there's no way you've got yeah you've got to knock that down it's it's okay. defunct right so but here's the interesting thing so as we know the Trump administration sho- shoves its nose in all kinds of things right. and our dear leader or whatever has said that he doesn't like most architects mm-hmm. you know since 1870 or something I don't know reconstruction but he uh, uh, 
I would prefer to see uh, this be part of the new school and, and see some really interesting architecture that we're seeing in other federal courthouses around the country. I mean, there's some, in, yeah, there's some new ones that are just amazing. They're breathtaking architecture and they're 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 visionary. So uh, yeah, no, it's gonna, in my opinion, well, it's not opinion. The indications are it's going to be in Rock Island. It's going to be new construction, and I hope it's something we can all get behind. Right, right. I think I think most people agree yeah. with that. Um, Hope Creek, of course, again, another thing that you okay, knew we were going to get to. Tell me about your... Quick. Okay. No, no, no. You don't need to be quick on this podcast. You can, I, we'd rather that you not. <laughs> right. No, but I think people really need to learn no, about know, this. They need to know about this. And the more detail we can go into, the better educated people can be in regard to these yeah. situations. So, and I, Again, I appreciate this opportunity. So one of my favorite ethics professors gave me a, a rubric for making very difficult decisions, right? Because sometimes in life we face incredibly difficult decisions. So one of the first things you do in, before you even start your decision tree is you have to have a sense of what your priorities are. Right. And there were so many conflicting data points on this that I decided, for right or wrong, my number one priority was to keep the residents of the building in their rooms, if at all possible. Happens I have an 88-year-old mother. If she were forced to dislocate right now, it would be very traumatic for right. her. Right. So th- with that in mind, um, I started looking at how do you, how do you build the decision tree from that? If the county kept it, considering... Now, let's listen to the data. It's losing $100,000 to $200,000 per month, and the county's borrowing capacity was down to about one payroll. Hope Creek's reserve right now, as of the moment we speak, is about $60,000. Its debt is about $17 million. Short-term debt alone is about $6 million. We had an instance last year that causes me chills. The people who provided the agency nurses, which, you know, if, you, if somebody doesn't show up for a shift, you got to have a nurse. And if you would normally pay, or a CNA, if you normally pay a certified nursing assistant $16 an hour, the minute you go to an agency, it's 32 The person doesn't get that. They only get 15 The rest goes to the agency, right? So uh, that agency said, if you don't come current on your bills, we're going to cut you off. Now, what if they did that? The oxygen providers did that. The pharmaceutical service providers did that. Ambulance services, you're not paying. Or the food, the, right. the okay. Well, then what happens? The state of Illinois steps in and says, okay, here's what you're going to do. County, you're going to pay that out of your liability tax levy, which has no cap, no cap whatsoever. Right. And then we're going to close it because you can't run this anymore. The moment it closes, every resident, 137 residents, are out. Right, right. And not all are going to find places in state-certified homes. A lot of them are going to be on the kindness of neighbors, people who don't have any real legitimacy, all kinds of things. And all of the workers are out of a job. they got to start from scratch. And I decided that was my second concern, is let's keep the workers employed, okay? Mm -hmm. So if keeping it means that... My decision tree, the branch breaks off because the people are gone, right? Then I have to look at selling it, right? So I'm not a real estate expert. I supported hiring somebody who was, and at first he thought he was going to get some good money, but you know what we weren't telling him when he made that prognostication? What the monthly agency fees were. So just last week, we had a finance... I think that's one of the biggest concerns is people felt that it should have gone for more money. The county should have gotten more money for it. But as soon as he found out, so in in just the first quarter, the first quarter of this fiscal year, it lost an additional 800... Well, it spent an additional $800,000 in agency fees. 
Okay? Right. And when the potential purchasers, we thought it would go for more because the building's so new. But when they looked at, and unfortunately there was a, search, a situation in Champaign County where they sold one, um, and then the legacy of these poor agreements about making it prohibitively expensive to run the center meant two years later the guy's losing money. Mm-hmm. So that drove the price down. And the best price we got was $6 million. Now I know there are people who would say, well, okay, just go to the one at $5.5 million. I, I guarantee you, well, I, I shouldn't say that. My strong supposition is had we done that, they would say exactly the same things about the $5.5 million provider as they did about the $6 million provider. Until very recently, Hope Creek was a one-star operation. I'm grateful that the team there, when the county board started paying much closer attention to what was going on there than we had in the past, because again, under the old model, the well-connected chairman said, oh, don't look too closely over there. Just vote yes. Just vote yes. When we started paying more close attention, then yes, it did go up in terms of its quality indicators, right? So um, anyway, if we had it for another few weeks, my nightmare scenario obtains. The state comes in and says, you got to close, right? So this is a way to do it. And the difference is those 137 people stay in their beds and the new owner, because they are state licensed and certified, they have to follow performance metrics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've heard they've got lawsuits against them. Guess what? We've got lawsuits against us. When you run a nursing home, you get lawsuits. Right, right. And so we've got to budget a couple of million dollars for the lawsuits that are already in the pipeline. Now, one thing I think is great is we vote to uh, tentatively, it hasn't been approved, to try to create some um, longevity bonuses so that if the staff, the team is there until the closing, they get a bonus, right? Because mm-hmm. we don't want people jumping ship. Right. My indication is, is that the company that's buying has agreed to underwrite those bonuses because they also realize they got to keep the team in place. Mm-hmm. So not only do the residents stay, but hopefully the employees stay. Mm-hmm. And I hope they unionize. And I hope they unionize with an organization that's going to have their best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. And, the long, and that includes the long-term sustainability of the employer. A lot of it all comes down to, and again, I I mentioned this before, I speak for myself and a lot of other people who live in the county. I would say everyone who lives in the county. Property taxes keep going up. We need to find some way to bring those down. And I mean, obviously, huge property tax increases last time was 9%, um, and it's gone up quite a bit over the last five years. How do we change that? Okay. How do we turn that around? Because obviously, it's it, it, people are are not going to, you know, maintain the residencies here or oh, consider this right. an attractive option if that continues to be the case. Right. So, absolutely right. Absolutely right. The nine percent was, of course, out nine percent of twelve percent of your budget. Uh-huh. Right. So you get that. So if you pay a hundred dollars to the county or to the, in your property taxes, only twelve dollars goes to the county. And that 9% increase is of that $12, not of the $100, okay? That, I think, of Reinhold Niebuhr's prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and courage to change the things I can. So remember that it's easy to say cut everything when our public defender's office is half the staffing because our partners have uh, kept open a lot of these positions. So the, the public defender's office has half the staff of the average of the five similar... The cars going by don't want us to know that the public defender's office has half the staff, because you mentioned that twice in both instance cars drove by loudly. Anyway, half public defender's office has half the staff, I understand, right. Kai. So they're, they're, they're keep, thank you, Sean. Uh-huh. They're keeping these positions open at our direction. The state's attorney's office is only two-thirds the staff of the five comparable counties. It's not like we're 
we're rolling. In fact, I don't know of a single office in the county that is at the average of the five similarly sized counties. So it's not that, right? It's this legacy of, of, of poor management in the past or micromanagement by these boards. So immediately with the sale of Hope Creek, you're going to see a $2.8 million positive swing on your tax uh, on the overall levy of the county. Okay, so that's going to start now. And when we pay off the debts of Hope Creek, that's going to accelerate even more quickly. The thing that's not in our control is I put in a plug for the fair tax amendment in the state of Illinois. Illinois is an outlier. Most of the states around us have a progressive tax. Right. And so the proposal... Which is what they're looking at. They're looking, they're looking that's what Pritzker, Pritzker wants to do is have a progressive tax. And if you do, you can go online now and you can factor what it'll be. 97% of Illinois taxpayers will see their income taxes go down. Right. Yeah. But the overall revenue will come in as other people pay a more fair share of their right. taxes like Iowa does. Right. If you make more money, you pay a higher rate. Yep. That's what most people do. That then should come to counties because what ha- happened at the state level is when it became apparent, you know, this whole flat tax was this whole anti-tax mentality, right. right? And so it sounds great down in Springfield, but they keep telling us what we have to do. And the only way to fund it, if you're not a home rule county, is through property taxes. Yeah. So yeah, we did have to pass a 9% increase, but remember that out of the $35 million budget of the county of Rock Island, f- more than $15 million is by state mandate. I mean, no. Well, I- so that was my next question, it's, which ties into this, is how does the county deal with those state mandates? And do you see that changing in a positive way now that Pritzker has come in? Because it seems as if Pritzker is changing policies. Browners were widely considered disastrous in regard to... He just sat there. He just ignored everything. He didn't have a budget. I'm in higher ed. What Bruce Rauner and the Republicans did to higher ed in the state of Illinois is a crime that will take generations to undo. Uh, That's why I'm excited by Governor Pritzker, and I'm, I'm fully in support of the fair tax measure. And that should. When can people start to see some property tax relief, you think, if Pritzker's able to get this progressive tax enacted? I don't know. I thought we'd start to see some more impact from cannabis sales tax. That's my next question. They're holding, they're holding on to that. They're, so now uh-huh. we just learned that we're not going to start to see those revenues until this fall. Right. So, again, there are things that we have control over. Did I vote for the cannabis tax and, and the legalization? Heck yeah. Uh, I'm not going to sit there and quibble over it. I don't drink, and yet I'm glad that we have sure. the, the alcohol tax. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, I think we're going to see it it takes time. Um, And in the meantime, what I hope voters won't do is take somebody who says, you know, like Pedro, all your wildest dreams will come true in the next six months. This takes long, slow work. And and we're not done yet. And I hope to have another couple of years to work at it. Now, that was my next question is in regard to the impact of marijuana. um, How do you see that impacting uh, the county in a positive way? The legalization. Yeah. Well, we pass the maximum tax that a county is allowed to tax, right? And I think that's perfectly legitimate. If you, you know, I mean, these are uh, special use taxes. Now, if we were a home rule community like Cook County, we could do all kinds of stuff. Remember, they had a soda tax and all this kind of stuff. Not that we should, right? But cannabis was an opportunity that was too good to pass up. So as long as it's happening, I fully support the county uh, taxing it. And I, and I question why some of the municipalities said, no, we're not going to allow it and all this kind of stuff. They must be rolling in money. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, I, apparently, there people don't smoke marijuana, Kai. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. I don't. Or they think that, the, they, they think that they don't. But 
Aside, I know people do, and that's fine. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it's 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 not a morality question. I was being sarcastic. It's a reality thing. People are doing it. Uh-huh, I mean, they've right. been doing it. But also, I think there's some controls, and we and we don't have time for this. But I mean, by putting a little regulation, that's mm-hmm. going to help consumers get a better product. One would think. Right. Right. And it, it and it monetizes it and helps the taxpayers as well. What are some of the big What are some of the biggest issues that you see facing the county that we have not discussed here? And what are your plans to yes. Uh, face those issues. Well, I already let spill my little secret plan. So you were going to cl- we're going to we're going to downsize the board as soon as we legally can. We're going to move ahead on taking advantage of the fact that uh, Hope Creek is no longer a drain uh, or a drag on the the property tax bills of our consumers, and we're going to continue to find smart ways to save taxpayers money. I think what the model is what we've done in the forest reserve, and you want to know the genius of that? <laughs> it's nothing I did other than get out of the professional's way. Right? So right now, when you hear people, and please be armed with this, when people say, get rid of Niobe, here's a little fact they don't like. Across the country, privately managed zoos require a 35% public subsidy to keep open. Otherwise, they'd be paying $80 ticket prices to get in. We've got Niobe down to 32% due to sound management and and part-timers like me getting out of the way of the professionals. We hope within the next couple of years to bring that down to 30%. So it's no genius on my part. It's get out of the professional's way and let them do what they've been trained to do. The other, no, what I said, the little thing I showed my hands on is I'd like to see further committee restructuring because that, if we do it right, could save the county on average fifty to $70,000 a year. Last question. Yes, sir. And this is, as I mentioned, we kind of inverted this. No, no, no. This is usually the first question in a debate is tell me... Tell us a little bit about yourself and why are you running? Why do you think you're the best person for the job? I appreciate that. Um, Well, I told you that the practical answer is that in 2015, someone I respect greatly, the former chair of the party, and I I respect the current chair greatly too, Derek Jones, but he said, Kai, we got a problem and we got to do something about it. And I agreed. When I was a kid, my uh, grandmother... uh, in a very highly segregated Peoria, Illinois, worked very hard and took her grandkids, like me, along in parts of town that little white kids didn't often go to. She taught me that when there's a problem, when there's something wrong, an injustice, or just something's not working right, sitting around bitching about it is not an option. You roll up your sleeves and you do something. So when I was approached, would I rather have, you know, the seven or eight hours a month, you know, to do something else? But once I was in, I'm all in. And I know that some of the decisions we've made have been unpopular. But the fact of the matter is, for years, how many times have you been, I mean, looking at the newspaper and seeing, oh, more dysfunction in Rock Island County and people want to get the hell out of here. Well, this is my home. This is where I want to live the rest of my life. I know one of the people that used to come down to our meetings and talk about his commitment to the area now lives in Florida. Mm-hmm. He just skated. I'm staying here, right? So I really want to see some changes that will last. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud of what we've done so far for Niobe because when I came on board, that was kind of on the bubble. And if you've noticed, I mean, it's really turned itself around. Uh, and I don't know if you, we just learned today that Moody's is upgrading the county's outlook from negative to stable. Uh, and that's breaking news, like just learned about today. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't just happen by telling people what they want to hear. Uh, the reason I'm doing this is I want to leave this. And my dad was a, a big influence on my life, too. Uh, he was the kind of a scout who said, you leave the campground in better shape than when you found it. Right? Uh, and this is an opportunity. I mean, I 
I owe my life to this community. And the biggest outlier in the in the region was how poorly Rock Island County was running. And so roll up the sleeves, get involved, and uh, yeah, if I've made decisions people don't like, I, I regret that, but I think my record of, of commitment to the community from the Holocaust Remembrance Committee to the Quad City Symphony Orchestra to writing that report for the city of Rock Island in 1989, everything, I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a profit motive in this. I want this place to be attractive to my grandchildren to want to live in, and so maybe that's the motivator. Anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? You've been very generous. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you very much. Guy Swanson, ladies and gentlemen, um, he's running for Rock Allen County Board. Um, he and Josh Ehrman are running for the same seat. Election day is next Tuesday, barring coronavirus concerns or something of that nature. Okay. The, the county clerk has sent out some notices today about how to make sure everything's safe. Okay. So get out and vote. Very good. Get out and vote. Very good. Next Tuesday is your chance to vote. Rock Allen County Board, Kai Swanson, Josh Ehrman are two uh, candidates. And thank you very much again for being on the show. And thank you for listening to QC Uncut, uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers. I am your host, Sean Leary. And once again, thank you so much. Have a great day.